Welcome to the New Kind of Man podcast. This is episode 46. In this episode, I talk to AJ Sherrill, who is a master of the Enneagram. It is a personality profile assessment, and it is unlike any other that I have found. So here's what I would like for you to do before I jump into this conversation with AJ. If you are familiar with the Enneagram, just proceed and you're going to love it and you're going to get a lot out of it. If you have not heard of the Enneagram, here's the thing. You can either continue on with this podcast and then go take the Enneagram assessment. You'll find that in the show notes or you can stop right now to go take the Enneagram assessment. That way you can find out your personality type and then you'll better understand even where he goes in this conversation. We don't drill down specifically on all of the different personalities. However, we do talk about the purpose of the Enneagram and what it, uh, what it accomplishes. And really, ultimately, what it does accomplish is this. It helps to get to the desire or to the root desire of why you do what you do. So this is different than any other personality profile assessment that I've ever seen. Enneagram has been incredibly helpful, and in case you're wondering... I'm an Enneagram One. Although I have been really, really interested in talking about the Enneagram on the podcast, the reason why this episode is here is because AJ connects the Enneagram and spiritual formation. Of course, one of the pillars of a new kind of man is spiritual growth. So part of spiritual growth is spiritual formation. And when you start to understand your personality and the way that you see the world and other people experience the world through you, then we can actually grow more spiritually. He breaks down a lot of the myths right up front of what the Enneagram is and what it isn't. I know that you're going to find this conversation helpful. Dig into it. Listen to it once. Maybe listen to it twice if something kind of grips you. I realize some of this maybe you've never even heard of. But he talks about it in a way that's not over your head, that there's something here for all of us. So now let's get into the discussion that I had with AJ about the Enneagram and spiritual formation. Oh yeah, and he tells a really cool story about living with a monk for a week. Check it out. Well, today on the New Kind of Man podcast, I have AJ Sherrill. AJ Sherrill is someone who has written a fantastic book on a topic that I've wanted to talk about on this podcast, something that I have kind of hidden away, uh, had it in my, my back pocket for years, something that's helped me, and that something is called the Enneagram. And AJ wrote the book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, How Knowing Ourselves Can Make Us More Like Jesus. So I want to give you a warm welcome, AJ. Yeah, thanks. So good to see you, Chad, and good to be on this podcast. Yeah, I am grateful that you could carve out time for us to have this conversation. And you have this book that's going to drop on September 15th. And I've been connected with you socially for a little while. I've actually, uh, I read Quiet, a really thin book. I recommend any guy read that uh, who's out there and who would listen to this. And I know that you are a studier into spiritual formation. But before we get into that, I would like for you to tell the audience kind of who you are, your family background, and uh, what you're up to these days. Yeah, so I was born outside Detroit, but raised in Nashville, and then moved to Orlando for my teenage years, and ended up planning a church after that in LA, uh, and then pastored in Atlanta, New York City, Grand Rapids, and now I find myself in Charleston, and I'm sort of a, a spiritual mutt in the Christian faith, in the great Christian tradition. I've dabbled 
in seeing what God has been up to in so many different traditions uh, in both the West and the East. And I love, um, I love the great tradition. I love uh, just the diversity of God through human peoples all over the world. And so um, now I find myself uh, in a movement becoming uh, Anglican. Uh, we have been on sort of the Canterbury Trail, as they say, for uh, a little over a decade. And I've mostly pastored um, non-denominational churches and Presbyterian churches, um, but I am uh, a charismatic and also one deeply called to contemplation and liturgy. And so how do we bring all of these streams of the great faith into uh, the house of the Lord and to be the people of God? So that's sort of a lot of the things that I think about. Um, and a lot of people think, how can you do all that at the same time? But um, that's what we're going for. And that's what we're seeing God do. Um, in our midst. So charismatic uh, and everything else that you just mentioned, I, I realized why you said mud. I'm like, you can't mix these things. That's not okay to do <laughs> in, this, in this day and age. AJ, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. There's this beautiful metaphor that maybe some of you have heard of, of trellis and vine. Yes. You know, imagine you have this trellis, this dead piece of wood, and you have this vine that's growing. You need both. You know, if you just have the trellis, this dead piece of wood, then you just have sort of going through the motions, liturgy, religion, without the spirit. But if you only have the spirit and it's all about spontaneity, then you can get lost in the weeds of just stuff growing out of control and it has no sort of rhyme or reason. So both of those things coming together, um, I think are just the beautiful confluence of the kingdom of God. And I'm very interested in those intersections of, um, of how God is just so mysteriously beyond us and yet uh, is radically available for us to, um, to encounter. You know, I think it's really interesting and in, in just even what you're saying, because I, I'm so thankful that there are people like you. And I know John Tyson's one, John Mark Comer's another. And these are, you know, you all are, are pastors that I listen to, I read, and I, I try to, you know, to emulate as much as I can and then learn also as much as I can. But I love how there's this connection between the contemplative and the charismatic. And for like hundreds of years, there's been this disconnection, denominationally disconnection of all this. It's either you're this or this. And yet there's this new movement of men of God who are basically giving permission for people to say, no, 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 look at the best of each tradition. And it doesn't make you less of a person or, or less of a Christian, but it, it actually makes you more well-rounded. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an amazing thing. And I, I come from, my education is from a Baptist background, and now I am a pastor of a Bible church, non-denominational, standalone Bible church, and I'm just, now I'm exploring these things myself to see the value, and I'm seeing the value, like you're talking about, with the contemplative of, uh, of you know, the Desert Fathers and Mothers and, like, those readings and what's happening, and... Uh, yeah, so that I'm really thankful you said that because I think a lot of guys who are listening to this, maybe they're kind of bought into the tribalism side of Christianity to where you think, well, it's either us or them, that kind of mentality. And uh, and I certainly am not for that, and it doesn't sound like you are either. Yeah, I think I'm just longing for more of God. Like when we yeah. think God is in our pocket and we have solved God, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Carl Barth said it best, in some sense, like we've got it like reversed where God is actually the subject of the world and we are the object. 
um, we're the object in which God is poking around and forming. I think often we think we're the subject of the universe and that God is our object and we get to sort of um, recreate God in our own image and tell this all consuming, powerful God what he can and cannot do. And that's like a problem. <laughs> At yeah. least it is in my own heart. I think they call that an idol. Yeah. Um, so I, in that, you know, I think the great traditions, we need to talk more. We need to figure out like, oh, like what's, what's God doing in you that God wants to do in me and vice versa. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm always captivated by the hope for more that surely an eternal God who has not been created, but has created everything. Um, surely we don't have this God solved and surely there's more we can discover mm-hmm. about the beauty and wonder and mystery of this God that we serve. You know, one of the pillars of my work at a new kind of man is spiritual growth. And all of this is based off of Luke two fifty two, And it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. So taking that in favor with God and kind of drawing out that principle and looking at Jesus being the perfect man and that I believe that we need to grow in these four pillars in other areas as well. But looking at the life of Jesus, it says that he grew in those areas and there's no sign that he ever stopped growing in those areas. So today in our conversation, we're going to talk about the Enneagram as a tool to help us with our spiritual formation. So spiritual formation um, just for our listener, could you unpack what that term means before we jump into how the Enneagram informs it? Yeah, I, I think uh, so. The baseline of, to start with is that we live in a beautiful but broken world. And that's not just out there, it's like it goes down to the heart of every soul. And so, spiritual formation is the recognition that we are not as whole as God intended, and that life is a journey of moving toward wholeness and shalom. And um, God putting the world back together, which begins with us. And so it is, it is not to say that we are entering into a works orientation where we're going to perform and achieve. It is to say that by cooperating with the spirit, God, um, God grows us over the course of time to look more like Jesus than we did the day, the week, the year before. And that hopefully over the course of life, um, we are living a kind of life in pursuit of more Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens in really hard ways, like humility and service and surrender mm-hmm. and obedience, like things that um, discipline, things that aren't always um, like celebrated in culture, but things nonetheless in which the culture of the kingdom of God is calling us to surrender to. So mm-hmm. that's how I would define it is this pursuit of the spirit in ways that give God permission to change us over the course of time to be more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's spiritual formation and it's, it's almost a reformation of our, of our inner being. Is that, is that kind of what you would also say? Yeah, I would say it starts with the inner being and it moves always in an outward direction. Okay. So like the idea is that is not just that we have this like privatized personal sort of transformative thing, but that eventually it flows through us out of our hands and feet into the world. So it's like head, heart, hands. Like how do we transform our minds as Romans 12 talks about? How do we see our hearts transform? And then how does that eventually enflesh itself through our lives into our work, our families, our neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, how does, how does the Enneagram, well, let me back up because I know there's going to be some guy out there if I use the word, I've used the word Enneagram and they're like, what's that? So I know what it is, but, but there, there's going to be a listener who doesn't. So explain to us what the Enneagram is, and then let's just kind of dabble in the idea uh, that the Enneagram helps 
to form us or is a tool to help us be formed spiritually. Yeah, I love the fact that you use the word tool there. That's all it is. In some circles, uh, the Enneagram is Satan. And in other circles, <laughs> the Enneagram is replacing God as right. like what, what the Christian faith is. I reject both of those sort of mentalities. And it's like mm. the Enneagram is this neutral tool. It comes from the Greek word Ennea, which means nine in gram. So it's a nine diagram of what's called the soul of God. And this is all just language. It's not, this is not like objective reality. This doesn't replace scripture, none of that. But it means that like, uh, as we've been talking about, God is multifaceted and that humans were actually meant to remind God of God, right? We are all made in the image of God. Right. And through our brokenness, we have these like shards of persona and that together we each have these different personalities. And when we're healthy, we're, we together reflect God more than we do apart. It's so beautiful. I think it's actually a case for the body of Christ that we actually need each other for the world to see a fuller picture of God than any one of us can do alone. And so the Enneagram, um, it's a little bit different than other personality theories. First of all, I love telling people the Enneagram is not your identity. You're, you're not a three or a five or an eight. That's not who you are. That's just mm -hmm. how you show up. You are a beloved child of God. Nothing's going to change that. There's nothing you can do to stop being a beloved child. That God loves you, that God loves you, that God loves you. Um, however, your personalities are the way in which you express that belovedness in the world. Mm. And so the Enneagram points out at least nine ways that we do that. And we all have kind of a core that we go to. We have all the types in us somewhere, but we sort of default to one more than the others. And that... Um, it doesn't just like if you've taken strength finders or Myers-Briggs, these are awesome theories. Those are behavioral theories. Mm -hmm. So they tell you, um, I can look at your life and say, well, you're behaving this way. So maybe you're an INTJ or maybe you're on a disc profile, you know, this sort of personality. The mm -hmm. difference with the Enneagram is it gets underneath that. It's less interested in behavior and more interested in motive. So it's the thing under the thing under the thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's not what you're doing. It's why you're doing it in the first place. And that was so meaningful to me when I started this journey because I could finally access, oh, this is why I do that. I understand that I do that. And what's weird too is that you and your friend can actually behave the exact same way, but do it for entirely different reasons. Wow. So the Enneagram helps you get underneath behavior and that's why you should never type someone because you never know what someone else's motives are. Mm. Um, and it just gives you all sorts of data about why I'm doing the things I'm doing. Why do I continue to do that? Why do I continue to do this? Why can't I stop doing that? Right. All sorts of things as to what's motivating and driving your existence. And from there, um, it shows you like ways that you're really great, things that are working really well and ways that God made you really beautiful. And then it also shows ways that you're like super broken and full of BS and right. you need to be called out in your stuff. And that's why I liked it is it gave me this like dictionary of knowledge where I was like, Oh my goodness, this is me. This yeah. is why I do this. And <laughs> yeah. I need to name that because that's not helpful for my wife. That's not helpful yeah. for the world. That's not helpful for my daughter, all that sort of stuff. I've had that exact same response. So it's, it's the same thing. Now, I want to just step back for just a moment. You said that there are nine different base personality types. And, and you, you said, and I've heard this before uh, from the books that I've read on the Enneagram, is that we all display, because all of the personality types 
uh, are a display of the image of God. So we have little bits and pieces of all of them, but yet we have like one that we would land on more than the others. So could you just briefly unpack one through nine of the personality types? And then I want to, uh, and kind of like jump into these, uh, and not necessarily to go into super great detail because we could spend a whole episode on on the Enneagram One, which would be great because I'm an Enneagram One, but, but I don't want to do that. I want to help everybody, not just me. But uh, if you could kind of unpack each one of these and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Yeah, so each one um, is uh, just a kind of caricature of... Uh, of what you would be your core. So like, we'll start with the one, for example, this is the reformer. It's also known as the perfectionist. So these are the sorts of people that just long for the world to be good. The two is the helper. These are people that um, often can walk into a room and just see what needs to be done. And they love to be helpful in the world. Sometimes the motive for that isn't as pure as we'd like it to be. It can be motivated by, well, I just want to be loved. So I'm going to do this so that you'll love me back. Um, the three is the achiever or the performer. Um, this kind of personality is rewarded in capitalism and environments where if you work hard, if you sort of go to school long enough, and if you are more competitive, then you will eventually like achieve more um, and get that benefit. And that can have all sorts of beautiful things and broken things wrapped up inside the motive for the achiever mm-hmm. or the performer. Um, there is the individualist or um what's called the romantic. And these are people that, um, uh, especially with what's happening in the world today, like people that um, are just kind of, they see themselves as an individual. They don't see themselves connected necessarily to a larger thing. Life can be more melancholy. It's about being authentic and who you are. Um, And that no matter, you know, if the crowd is doing this, then you're doing that, right? It's standing out in the midst of that. There's the five, which is the observer or the investigator. These are people that are great with research and data. They hoard knowledge. They love intellect. They operate in their brains. They're great at reasoning. There's the six, which is known as the loyalist or the skeptic. These are people that are like, Enneagram, uh, no thanks. I don't believe that stuff, right? (laughs) But these are also people that are like fiercely loyal. They make great leaders, great CEOs. They're really good at team dynamics. They're sort of fearful, but when they overcome their fears, they have great amounts of courage. Um, we see this in like the apostle Peter, who was constantly going in and out of like courage and fear, courage and fear, courage and fear, this sort of mentality. Uh, there's the seven, which is always the life of the party, known as the enthusiast. That's my wife. There you go, man. <laughs> Sevens are always good to have around. Be careful you, you don't use them because uh, sometimes they're actually going through really hard things and they actually don't need to, to be the life of the party. They need to just blend but they often want to be out in front. They have a future orientation toward life, the bigger, the better, the next trip, the next thing, the next project. There's sort of that sort of mentality. And a lot of it they do because they don't actually want to dig into their past because it's been hard. Um, so you can see a lot of personalities actually strategy. It's not identity. It's a strategy to cope. And that's true for all of them. The eight is known as um, the leader or the challenger. Uh, these are people that love justice. They're not afraid to say a hard thing. Uh, They typically are misunderstood, um, but what they really long for is like for the world to be put back together. Uh, So these are the people that are on the front lines right now in the protests and are just calling for reconciliation. They Mm -hmm. love to defend the marginalized, uh, but sometimes they can be like super aggressive and turn people off. 
um, and not know it. And the nine is the peacemaker or the mediator. And that's that person that sometimes struggle to make their voice known. They love bringing people together. There's someone that people typically pull into a conversation, hoping that they can mediate. They make great judges. Uh, typically they're more objective, but they also sometimes can suppress their own opinion and um, can sort of vacillate between what they should do next. So that's just a brief overview. Yeah, that's yeah. like scratching the surface, but hopefully that puts you at least in the ballpark of beginning to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Um, and I think the guys will will kind of land there. But I do think uh, you said something earlier, AJ, and I think it's valuable to kind of touch back on. It's it's not okay to just go through and either try and just type yourself and be like, oh, well, that's me. I'm done. I'm settling for this. I'm just in this. That's just who I am. And then move on. The, the Enneagram, to me anyway, is is a tool that is to be used, not a weapon, Although it can be, for some personality types, they, they think it's a weapon because they actually are, things about them are being revealed that they want to hide. Um, in my experience, anyway, you're the, you're the master of this, I'm not. But, uh, but I think that, that there's something here, too, to where a guy needs to be able to, to look at these things and actually take the test and do the work before he just listens to your your explanation be like oh well, that's who i am yeah done so what would be some next steps like you just mentioned these things what would be some next steps like if if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like oh that's kind of interesting i did the disc thing it seemed like it was you know it was okay mm -hmm. myers briggs ah eh. like we all know that even myers briggs changes like my my identification on myers briggs has changed over the years it's conditional and now you mentioned that the Enneagram really gets to the why. It gets to what motivates us. What is it that's causing us to do the things that we're doing? So what would be some next steps that you would recommend for someone? Yeah, I mean, think of it like a funnel. So I do workshops around the world, and this is what I help people um, sort of assess and then develop a spiritual rhythm that's going to help you within your personality. Um, what I find, the test can be somewhat helpful. They put you within a range, but it's not like I took the test next, I'm moving on. Yeah. It's like actually people mistype for years and then realize, my goodness. The thing about it is, is, is that we are mysteries unto ourselves. Yeah. So this is a journey. So like what I tell people is, yeah, sure, take the test. And that puts you in a ballpark of, let's say, narrowing it down to three or four numbers. And then you can, you can find stuff online it's free. I mean, you don't have to buy my book. You can find stuff online that's going to give you all the sort of cliff notes on each type. So let's say you take the test and the eight and the three and the seven are the ones that just are the ones that rank highest for you. Mm -hmm. Then what you can do is just online read in depth a couple pages on each one. And, and it's not the test that gives you the final sort of word. It's not even, um, you know, uh, people around you, or even maybe in, even your initial thought. It's, it's this key ingredient. And this is what um, uh, years ago, when I started studying this, uh, a monk named Father Richard Rohr told me this when I was at, at his house for a week talking about these things. He said, um, he said, the thing that will give you the greatest intel about your core type is this. And so I lean in and I'm like, okay, man, here it comes. <laughs> and he says, it's humiliation. Wow. And that's why a lot of people, I think, uh, subconsciously hate this thing because it's humiliating. Yeah. Like when you start realizing, it sort of feels like someone's read your journal yeah. and you're like, oh crap, is that, yeah, I think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, 
if we're not careful, we can shame ourselves. So we got to be careful about that. Yeah. But we also can get really sad about like what kind of impact that's having in the people around us and the world around us. So um, in some ways, it's really good news because you can start to face all the things that you've suppressed and sort of shoved under the rug. Um, that's called your shadow side. Yeah. But in other ways, it's such a gift to say, okay, look, that's real and that's true, but that doesn't have to be the final word on my life, my relationship, my story. And so I think it's really helpful to know. I'd rather know. It's like if there was... Um, you know, like food on your face, you would want to know, right? Rather than just living your whole day and everyone just didn't say anything. Right, but everybody saw it on your face except you. That's right. Like, that's how I see this. It's like, I'd rather know and face it so that I can say, okay, what can I do about that? Than just say, whatever, it is what it is. Um, So that's what I'd recommend is do a funnel. So start with a test and then do, as you whittle it down, do some readings, bring in some other people, people that know you, hey, which one do you, which one do you see most? But again, their motive. So it's like a glacier. They don't see what's underneath the water. They only see the top, but they can be helpful. Yeah. And then from there, read those types and say, okay, which one, which one causes me to say, oh no, whichever one, whichever <laughs> one makes that's you me. grunt the loudest. Yeah. Whichever makes you grunt the loudest. That's the one that you probably resonate most with. Is there a point that we should bring that into community to where we should, you know, when, once we go through the, the funnel, is there a point that we should actually bring that to somebody else to say, do you think, I mean, especially if somebody's not really self-aware, do you think it's okay to, to take that, that, that intel, that information, and then take it to somebody who we can trust? Maybe it's, you know, a discipleship group or husband, wife, somebody, people who know us. And do you think it's okay to kind of seek uh, to validate the results by somebody else's opinion of us? Totally. Okay. Totally. What what I would resist doing though is expecting them to do the same for you. Like that's, that's a really private thing. And a lot of times like churches and organizations uh, and friendship groups, networks want to make like their group all about the Enneagram. Yeah. And that can be really annoying because, um, you know, other people get really turned off if they feel like they don't know it. They feel like an outsider. It grieves my heart when like churches are like, oh, we talk about the Enneagram in our sermons. And it's like, yeah, that's the gospel is hard enough to communicate, let alone like overlay it with this new language. But I hear what you're saying. I think it's like my wife and I, I bring stuff even to her last night. I was like, hey, what do you think about this? Do you feel like this is more me or do you feel like this number is more me? Um, And so people can really help you on that journey. As a three, um, that's the type I present the most. Uh, I need other people to know so that like I can confess stuff. Otherwise I'll just sort of, um, mask my achievements, um, and, or I'll sort of mask my brokenness and just display my achievements. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like I need to confess like real things in my heart. Otherwise people will just think, oh, he's doing great. You know, look what he's doing, right. You know, or he's in a good mood. He must be doing well when really it can be a strategy to, kind of present a life that really um, isn't as good as what I want others to think. Okay. So I want to talk about two different things. They're, they're connected because Mm -hmm. it has to do with Enneagram, but yet they're just part of things that you've talked about thus far. And I know that you talk about identity. That's the second question I want to get into of identity. I know you talk about that in the book, but I just want to cycle back to what you said, because I guarantee you that of, all of the people who are going to listen to this podcast, they're wondering what it was like to live with a monk for a week. So if you could <laughs> kind of unpack that, like tell, tell us what that was like at Richard Rohr's house. I have like in yeah. my mind what it was like. 
I know I know enough about you know Father Roar, but yet I, I would love your per, your inside yeah. perspective. Yeah, I mean, we actually had a lot of chats about theology because um, we have a lot of differences in our understanding of um, what's known as Christology, the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine mm-hmm. of Jesus. So, um, so you know, when people hear, "Oh, you spent a week with Roar," you must think exactly how he is, and it's like, right. no, we actually had a friendship to where we had great, really helpful disagreement on mm-hmm. a lot of things. His psychology is really helpful for me. Um, he's really good in the area of like shame and second half of life, meaning like how do we grow in freedom and all that stuff and not just live by systems and the law and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the law of religion, that is. Um, it, he He's sort of his own thing. He's not a typical monk. So his typical monks live together. Um, so he's more of an eremitic monk, which is the root word of that is hermit. Most monks we know are cenobitic, which is meaning we live in community or cloisters. Um, so he lives by himself. He's got sort of, he runs an organization. He's sort of um, just more of like a spiritual director and author uh, than monk at this point. Cause he's just so famous and he, you know, kind of, yeah, I, I, he was, uh, he's a teacher, you know, more than he is a monk at this point, I would mm-hmm. say, uh, in my experience of him. Um, but I found him to be uh, extremely fatherly and very interested in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, he loves his dog, his dog Venus, who's since passed, um, mm-hmm. would just sit at his feet while he taught us. And there was only like a few of us, like a couple of us in the room. So it was very um, restful. By the end of the week, you know, we're hugging and taking photos and, you know, he's the kind of guy that knows your name yeah. after like a, a few minutes. And that means a lot. Like when someone looks upon you that you admire or have read about or has influenced you and they say your name, right. you're like, oh my goodness, that person whose name I know knows my name. You know, mm-hmm. he's that kind of a guy that you're like, oh man, you're like a real guy that has real struggles and yet um, has, you know, still determined to try to make a difference in the world. Um, so it, it wasn't anything magic where, you know, he walked on water. It, it was a sense <laughs> of like relational is what I would say about Father Roar. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That, that is, it's just one of those things I've listened to interviews and, uh, and seen him in interviews and, and read a couple of his books. The, uh, I think you kind of mentioned this, you didn't mention the title of the book. Is it the spirituality of the two halves of life? Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, mm-hmm. Man, that, upward is what he calls that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. That one, uh, man, that really, helpful. really helped Very helpful. me like crazy. And, and honestly, once it's one of those things that once you see that and, and understand that, you see it everywhere. Yeah. So at least I do, and and maybe that's just me, you know, getting uh, getting too professionistic into other people's lives with my you know with yeah. my personality type, perhaps. But or maybe that's the positive side, the reformer. Yeah. So let's cycle back to identity. You know, you said that I, that uh, Enneagram is not our identity, meaning that I, I tested out, you know, as an Enneagram one. So I'm not a, that isn't just who I am, but yet how does, how does the Enneagram help us with our identity? Yeah, I, I think, well, imagine it like a tree. So at the, at the root system, that's your beloved core. I mean, that's your identity that like, that's, that's sort of at the center of who you are, that root system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I like to view personality as like the trunk coming out of that. 
Um, and then like the foliage and branches as your gifts and your um, character. Mm. So they're all connected. Like I, I don't ever want to present the person, the human person as these disconnected realities. Yeah. I think in many ways we already see that. Like um, we already see our heads as disconnected from our hearts or our hands as disconnected from our hearts. And um, we, we're an integrated whole. And the more we can integrate the systems of who we are, the more human we become. Yes. So I don't want to say that personality isn't somehow connected to your identity. I would say your personality actually flows from your identity. Mm. And if your personality is unhealthy, then you know that you have an unhealthy view of your own identity. Mm. You know, there's some, there's some work there that you have to do. The more healthy and generative you are in your personality, the more that you're probably actually living out of what God says is already true about you, that you didn't mm. earn and that you don't earn and that you can't lose. So mm. it's that sort of thing that I think, um, they're connected, but at the same time, they're distinct. So it's more of like a Venn diagram. Um, and what I see people doing a lot is sort of like conflating the two um, mm. that, you know, somehow uh, until you grow in your personality, you're not lovable by God or, mm. you know, I'm a three, I'm a five. That's all I'll ever be. Mm. Um, so there, there's a connection, but there's also a, a disconnection there. Okay. Well, let's go down and uh, again, I know that you could spend a lot of time on this. You do workshops around the world. So you could be able to speak into this for hours and hours, but if you could just generalize this, uh, this, this kind of question. So of the nine base personality types, if, if somebody's going to, they take the Enneagram test and they find out that they're whatever number and they look at it and all they see is the darkness they see the shadow they're like oh they don't they don't see they don't see the the you know how how good and how well acclimated they are on their personality they just sit back and they see their shadow and they see every terrible thing about themselves how would you how would you like help this person who now they found out these things about them that they don't like how would you help them to take steps to walk into the fullness, but I want, but if you could do this from an Enneagram one to a nine. So if they're in in unhealthy places, what kind of things could one through nine, what could they do to become more healthy? Yeah. So that's what my book really gets into on, on the sort of practice side. So I have what's called, um, so let's get back to the spiritual formation side. What we're saying is, okay, I'm sitting with a situation in how I show up in the world and and that's got to change and that's not helpful. And I'm recognizing that for the first time. What can I do? So here's one of my critiques on the church. It's that we batch spiritual formation. In other words, we say things like, hey, come to church, read your Bible. <laughs> at least we used to say come to church. Now we say watch, watch church at home. <laughs> yeah, um, stay at home, watch church, it's fine. Read your Bible, pray, and maybe give some money. And in 30 years, you'll be changed. Right. I think most people don't feel changed after 30 years. They just feel older. And so there are so many different ways to pray, by the way. There are so many different ways you can read the Bible. Um, there are different ways to give. Not everyone has money. There are ways to give. Um, so like my critique on the, on, on the church through this book, and, and I say that critique as someone that loves the church, who's, who's committed to her. Sure. Um, my critique of it is that personality and spiritual formation needs to be nuanced and tailored to the human person because we're all different. Mm-hmm. So each of the nine types, um, I recommend a upstream and downstream practice. 
that if you'll live into this practice, it will help you grow. It will both affirm and challenge your personality to become more whole into Christ likeness okay. into the fullness of like for me as a three into a healthy three mm-hmm. for the sake of the world. Right. Um, so uh, by upstream, I mean this, if you're going to get, imagine, imagine looking at a river and putting in a raft and you do this in Georgia because you guys have those amazing rivers that you can just float on and they mm-hmm. have that down in Atlanta. I know. Um, and so if you got onto a raft in a river, it would, the current would take you one direction or the other. So where the current takes you, that's downstream. Like you're going downstream with the current. Those are things that go in the natural flow of who you are. Okay. So I'll just say for like, let's just take me as an example, as a three, I love things that help me achieve like Bible study, reading more books, understanding more ideas and concepts that I can teach. So for me, it'd be, Hey, AJ, continue the practice of inductive Bible study where Mm -hmm. you're parsing the Greek and you're trying to understand what God is saying through Matthew 10, whatever, whatever. That's really good. That's a great practice. It brings you life when you read books that, that you find, oh my goodness, this helps me see the world differently. But there's what's also called upstream practices. And those are practices that we like to avoid because, um, well, we don't like them for one reason or another. For me, a lot of it is like being still and contemplative. Why? Why is that a problem? Why is that hard? Because I want to achieve something. And sometimes just sitting there and not reading anything or learning anything or writing anything down, it can feel like a waste of time. Right. But God is inviting me to just sit in the presence. Like Jesus says in John 15, abide mm-hmm. in me. Unless you abide in me, you have nothing to do with me. Right. I, I, I cannot use that. And it's just like, oh my word, Lord, maybe mm-hmm. the greatest thing you're calling me to this morning is just to sit at your feet like Mary instead of being busy like Martha trying to get a bunch of stuff done. Maybe I don't need to check email as the first thing in my day. Maybe the most important thing of my day is just to be still and to realize that I'm loved and I don't have to earn that. And I can learn to just sit in your presence and, uh, and discipline my thoughts so that they don't just take me all over the place. So every type in this book gets upstream and downstream practices so that you can see, oh my goodness, I was made uniquely. And God is inviting me and affirming practices that I'm really good at and is also inviting me to practices that I just prefer avoid because they don't really jive with my personality. And here's the thing. If you miss everything in this podcast, here's the thing. Most people do what they're good at and omit the rest and Mm. call that following Jesus. Mm. And it is no wonder that after 30 years, you don't feel changed. Why? Because you've not allowed the spirit to challenge you and to invite you into constraint and resistance and surrender. Um, so, so that's what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And the word discipline came to mind because, you know, the downstream, that's going to be that's just our natural flow. This is going to be the thing. This is good. What we, this is what we do. This is awesome. This is great. Give me a cold drink. Let's float on this river. This is going to be amazing. There's there's not going to be any rapids, but if there are rapids, that's fine. We're going to make it through. And yet we need a paddle. So we're not having a cold drink when we're going upstream. We need, we have our you know our hands to a paddle and we're going upstream. And I think that you know that becomes you know when people talk about spiritual formation. Now, full disclosure, I was only really brought into the awareness of the, the terminology spiritual formation probably four years ago. Up until then, it was the spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. 
And I realized the spiritual disciplines are part of formation, but, but there was more of a stress on discipline. Like, oh, this is just something you have to do. And one of the, one of the great challenges that I faced and a lot of guys that I help, it's the same thing that they face is they look at that discipline, but they don't realize that there's an incredible payoff. When you go upstream, it isn't just going upstream just because, well, that's the hard thing to do. I mean, how foolish is that? Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody likes to do the hard things just for the sake mm-hmm. of doing hard things. Mm-hmm. Unless of course you're fueled by pride, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the exception. So you can, you know, put your feather in your cap and say that I did it myself. But, but I think that even part of the spiritual traditions, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we look at all of those things. We look at everything. We look at confession. We look at surrender. We look at service. We look at giving. We look at evangelism. We look at everything else that Richard Foster talks about in celebration of discipline, right? All those, all those chapters. And I think we look at that as, oh, those are all disciplines and they're all hard. And I, what I love about your message is you said, no, there's, there's going to be a discipline, a downstream for you that just comes normal. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not always hard. Mm-hmm. Just find the one that's good for you and flow in that. And then, you know, and then you flow in that and the richness of that. Then you're going to have, honestly, it's going to help you to be more motivated to do the things that are more difficult, the upstream, more disciplined type of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that would be true even in like any basic relationship that you have. Yeah. There's going to be part of any relationship. And, and part of the mischief that we get in spirituality of all kinds is that we turn God into a transaction. Yeah. Um, or we turn God into sort of an idea. And we don't realize like God at God's heart is relational and is, I mean, Trinity is relational. And out of Trinity, we were created because God wanted relationality with yes. us. And all the spiritual practices are doing is inviting you. It's that trellis and vine. The practices, the disciplines, they're the trellis. But they're all unique ways of inviting the spirit into your life. So whether you're walking nature or whether you're journaling or whether you're in confession or whether you are, whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you find in your upstream and downstream practices, none of them matter if there's not an invitation to encounter the living God. Right. These are all just means mm-hmm. by which we can get at the presence. And it's in the presence that we're transformed. I really appreciate that because, and I want to, I want to go just a little bit off of what you said. I think what the reason why um, <clears throat> you go through the elements of spiritual formation, the reason why I think that guys get need to get turned onto the Enneagram and, and use it as the tool that it is not as a crutch, but as a tool to, to improve but ultimately, it's something to help you to grow to be more like Christ. If we just have these disciplines, and if it's just a matter of, well, this is just what I do, and, and like you use the term transactional, honestly, then if, if that's all there is and that where there's really no payoff, there's really no connection with God, then that version of Christianity, quote unquote, is no different than Stoicism. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just I do these things, and ultimately, because if I do these things, I'm going to either make myself feel better, or I'm going to reinforce that I mm. I have control over my life. And the spiritual disciplines are to release control to God. Yeah, at least that's 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 the practice of when I pray and when I sit in silence and when I have times of solitude. That's what it is. It to me, it's and maybe this this makes sense of the upstream downstream i haven't read the book yet in full cuz it's not it's not out yet but uh, for an enneagram 1 
it's for me, I, I'm so into doing. And I think a lot of guys are so into doing, 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 and they think I have to do something and that's going to form me. But for me, it's not doing something mm-hmm. is, is the simple, Hey, I don't need to fix the world today. I don't need to fix me today. I need to sit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The recommendation for the one is to be in nature because you realize that there are so many imperfections in nature that actually are beautiful. So like when you look at a tree and some gnarly stump happening or some weird limb, you know, the one wants to critique it and say how ugly or why that. And, but you don't realize like that actually imperfection of that limb is actually what makes that tree unique and beautiful. And I can just value that for what it is and I don't need to change it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are times for the one you have to say, it's okay for me to not walk around trying to change the world all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay for me to just recognize that the world is what it is and to make peace with that. And I can walk freely into it. So nature is a big thing for once, I recommend. Yeah. And that, you know, have not knowing that information, I, man, I connect so deeply to the Lord in nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, just going for a walk in the woods, you know, to me is just so restorative. Yeah. And, and now I have more, you know, nomenclature terminology to understand what's happening on the inside rather than I just like being in the woods. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Where, where there's actually something deeper to me, which is, is good. Just being in the woods is good too, but this, this helps me even more. Do we have so, time for a quick story? Oh, I have as much time as you, as you All want. Right. So in that week we were with father Rory, he said to us, Hey, I want you guys to go walk my neighborhood and just notice things and come back. We'll talk about them. Hmm. So we did that for about an hour and we all come back and he said, what'd you notice? And we all started talking about it. You know, there was a, a tree that was sort of gnarly and was dying and, you know, and then there was a, a fence that was rusty and, you know, it probably needs to be changed out. And there was this car and, you know, what a cool car and blah, blah, blah. Or there was this color of this house. It was, you know, the color of salmon. I would never want my house salmon, you know, that sort of conversation ensued. And he said, what I want you to notice about your conversations, about what you notice is they are entirely self-referential. In other words, we walk the world um, viewing the world based on whether or not we liked it. Wow. So much of life is about whether I like that or not. Mm. And uh, and really we set ourselves up as these kings that rule the world, that the world exists for my pleasure and for my opinion. And it was a breeding ground for narcissism. Oh, for sure. It's consumerism. It's everything. It's about me. So it's whatever I see, it's like, oh, that's ugly. And yet somebody else could look at it and be like, no, that I realize the car is rusty, but man, that car could be awesome. What's in paint. That's a 57 Chevy. And I could look at it and be like, yeah, "Yeah, that thing's a rust. (laughs) That's right. And so the self-referential part, especially in an age of individualism, I thought was so helpful. Like, man, that's, so much of my life is just walking around critiquing things. Man. And there's such an invitation to stop that and to be curious and to recognize value and beauty for what it is. Mm. And that I don't actually have to fix everything, that it's okay for that tree to be what it is. And that it, it, it was here long before I was probably, will probably be here after I'm gone. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that tree saying, who are you, bro? I've never heard of you. <laughs> You're new. Oh, wow. That is, that is powerful. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, really that sets a framework of, 
of a lot of different things and really in a, in a broader sense explains uh, personality and, and the way that we, we see the world, the way that we experience the world, and also the way that, that people experience us. Because I think that's another reason why people need to tune into the Enneagram and figure out the personality type and, and shadow side and all that is to grow. But it from not only from a, what am I going to gain from it? But ultimately, if I'm experiencing the world as say an Enneagram five, and that means that, that people around me are experiencing my world as an Enneagram five. So I'm projecting something yes. people around me based off of that. So, so we may, and a lot of guys, they may think, well, you know what, I can just deal with this myself, but yet maybe the most compelling factor to lean into the Enneagram is that means you're also projecting something on the people that you love. Yeah. So let's take this into leadership. You know, some of you listening lead companies or organizations, or you're a part of a leadership structure that you may or may not like. What happens is the type that we lead out of, you know, so whatever your type is, you lead from that place. There's actually a really good book called the nine types of leadership by Beatrice Chestnut, The Nine mm. Types of Leadership. I've used it for my teams before. Mm. And um, what, what I realize is that whatever type of leader you are, you expect that from others. Mm-hmm. And um, I was totally, I won't go into it, but um, my previous post in Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I had to learn really quickly that, um, oh my goodness, um, he's a nine. And so mm. that's why he doesn't quickly give his opinion. You know, here I thought he didn't like me or yeah. wasn't interested in the meeting because there weren't like, I'm a sort of whiteboard. Let's get the idea going. Come on, everybody participation. Mm-hmm. And yet half of my team were fives and nines that kind of hang back and need to process and need to take time and reflection. Oh, man. And so I had to learn in my leadership bent, like AJ, you have to give people space and time because not everyone is a verbal processor and wants to do that in the moment. And when I do, what I notice is that their ideas are usually better than mine because they've been more thoughtful toward Mm. And so there's a ton of things in the Enneagram that can just help you grow as a better leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even as a dad, I can tell you just for me to have gone through uh, the Enneagram first in in my home. And now I've got a 24-year-old son who doesn't live at the house anymore. He's married. He's doing great. daughter-in-law is fantastic. I know what their Enneagram number is. I've got a 17-year-old daughter. She's fantastic. She she and I share the same Enneagram number. So we see the world, we experience the world, people experience us in a very similar way. And then I know my what my wife's number is. And what you said has been so transformative in for my leadership at you know at the church, but also my leadership at home and the way that I I love those around me because I used to not understand that, and this is going to be so petty, but me, Enneagram One perfectionist, I used to walk around the house cleaning, every, cleaning the mess up, whatever it was. It's like if there was something on the floor, I was the only one who saw it. If there was a sock in the corner, I, everybody would just go by it like it was Grand Central Station, but I would walk by it and I would think about that sock for the rest of the day. Dude, I'm being serious. This is, this is a problem. And like, this is just so me. And yet I... Early, we've been married now 26 years, but early in our marriage, man, that would just frustrate me. I'm like, am I the only one who sees that sock? Like, am I the only one who sees that dish? Am I the only one who sees that plate? And I have to tell you, there is just, for me, understanding, whoa, we're wired differently. Like, her value point is different than mine. And that has allowed me, honestly, to be a better husband, a better dad, uh, a better friend, a better pastor, a better leader. 
just a better person because I understand that I, exactly what you said, all of my expectations were based off of my personality. I wanted them to perform in the way that I wanted them to be based off of who I am. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And man, that just, <laughs> that just so changed everything about about parenting and everything else. So it's a great tool for that of really all of life to be able to dig into it. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So is there anything we missed? Is there any like uh, something you want to talk about with spiritual formation and the Enneagram? I mean, I know guys are going to go buy the book. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I get the book. I'm going to have people on my team get the book. This is going to be something that is going to be a part of, of who we are and helping us. Uh, just to be an, uh, just another tool, but is there any last words that you would like to share with us about this? Yeah, probably my favorite part to teach and to, to for people to read um, is the part about the Bible. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have a whole chapter in there where I take every type through the Bible, mm-hmm. a, a narrative that intersects with your personality. And it's not mm-hmm. to say like King Saul was a three, uh, da- you know, Peter was a six. Right. It is to say that we see these tendencies in whatever amount of text that, that the Lord has given us mm-hmm. to where we can identify our lives in their story. And that's really big right now because um, we have more Bibles now printed than ever before and probably less Bibles read. Yes. And so there's like a massive biblical illiteracy that's happening with our kids where they mm-hmm. don't know the stories like many of us did growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm passionate to help people find themselves in the scripture mm-hmm. that these aren't Though their contexts are different, um, their motives and their sin is the same. Mm. And how can we find connections with our spiritual ancestors in ways that when we read the text, we see ourselves, Mm -hmm. we see our own tendencies playing out. And I can't tell you, like King Saul is the one that I gave for the three. This is the one who was born with tons of natural talent. Mm -hmm. um, And that over the course of life, he didn't steward it. And mm-hmm. lost his anointing. Mm-hmm. And so as a pastor, as a leader, as a writer, as an influencer, I might have been given the gift of like influence and, and craft. Mm-hmm. But if I don't steward my anointing in favor, that can all go away tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like those sorts of things. It's like, oh, my goodness, I need to be really well acquainted with King Saul's journey mm-hmm. because I don't want that to be mine. I want mm-hmm. my story to be different. And it helps you to see the text in a different light of like, wait, these aren't like old primitive people with nothing to offer that I'm just supposed to know about their life. Their life is actually shedding light about mine Mm -hmm. and how God is wanting to spare me or that God is wanting to invite me and some of the the triumphs that some of these, some of these narratives go through. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would, I would highly encourage to make sure that when you get your type, you read that section of the book so that you can identify with biblical characters. That's awesome. I think that, you know, generally, you know, I agree with what you said. Obviously, there's more Bibles printed and people not reading them and sitting on shelves. And I think anything to inspire people to read the Bible mm-hmm. and to give a fresh perspective when reading, yes. because I think it, you know, it, it becomes it, it becomes like, OK, I read the Bible and that's upstream to use your terminology. It's like yeah. that's the that's the preset kind of, you know, 30 years of. The, the person who's been in the church for 30 years and who's unchanged, it's kind of like, oh, that's an upstream. I, I'll read my Bible, you know, oh, I didn't get it to it today or something that where, where they're not really inspired mm-hmm. to read it. So I love it. I love the fact that you said that because that creates, again, just another layer of, uh, of inspiration. And, yeah. Um, 
to help us to wake up to the scriptures, which are transformative. Totally. So, well, AJ, it's been a treat, man. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time this week to come on, have this conversation, you know, sometime in the future, I would love to have a podcast on, on quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that is one of those things that it seems very mystic, uh, within not your book didn't come across mystic, but I think that it's people, they see it as, is very mystic and, and unapproachable, or maybe it's just for the super spiritual person. So I, I know that you probably have a ton of podcasts you're going to do because of the release of this book, but sometime in the future, I'd love for you to dig into quiet. Yeah. In fact, Baker um, contracted with me to rewrite Quiet. So I'm currently writing a new manuscript for that. Cool. And it's going to include sections on neurology. In other words, like what's happening in your brain when you pray, because I can tell you this, I've, my friend and I, who's a neuropsychologist, we, we teach together on um, this form of prayer and he'll hook people up to EEGs. He'll put these receptors on your brain and we will watch what happens when people pray. And this is all I can tell you is that things are happening in your brain when you pray. It's incredible. In other words, the scriptures aren't lying to you, that the spirit lives in you and wants to renew your mind. Something happens when you pray. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I'd be happy to come back on. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait to read it. Um, So that's good stuff. Again, thank you so much for coming on. And it's great to get to know you and have this conversation. I so appreciate the work you're doing. And just want to encourage you, you are helping people all over the world. So uh, I just want you to know that that you are and that you're certainly helping me. Uh, Thanks, Chad. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for listening to the New Kind of Man podcast. You've been given some good manly encouragement and now it's your turn. If you found today's content helpful, go tell a friend and please leave us a review. Also, consider hitting that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. Now it's time for all of us to do what Theodore Roosevelt said. Create. Act. Get action. Do things. Be sane. Don't fritter away your time. Take a place wherever you are and be somebody. Get action.